From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. David Carrier wasn't sure how he felt at first when he heard that he and his collaborators at the University of Utah had won an Ig Nobel Prize. The Ig Nobels are a parody award for scientific achievements that are just a little bit weird. In 2021, for instance, the Ig Nobel Prize in Biology went to a team of researchers who analyzed more than a dozen forms of communication between cats and humans. And in that same year, the prize in chemistry went to a team that analyzed the smells in movie theaters to see if they corresponded to the levels of violence, sex, drug use, and profanity in the movie that was on the screen. And that year's Ig Nobel Prize for Peace went to a team that devised and carried out an experiment to help determine whether human beards evolved to protect people when they were punched in the face. And that last study was carried out in David Carrier's lab at the University of Utah, where, over the years, a lot of seemingly strange experiments have been carried out. But Carrier has come to understand that part of the cost of doing what he does in his lab is some good-natured ribbing. But there's a really serious thread that underlies all of it. Because while it might seem silly to study whether beard hair is protective against punches, and it is protective, by the way, it's also part of a larger question that Carrier has been trying to answer for years. A question that gets to the very heart of who we are. What did we evolve for? And Carrier believes that part of the answer to that question, as revealed in the Beard study and others that we're going to be talking about today, is fighting. In other words, it might be true that we're not just a violent species because of the ways that our societies are constructed. It might be part of who we are at a basal, genetic, natural level. David Carrier is a professor at the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Utah, and he has been the author or co-author of nearly 200 journal articles, many of which are focused on anatomical and physiological specializations for aggressive behavior in humans. David Carrier, welcome. Hi, Matthew. It's a great opportunity to have this chance to talk to you. So thank you. David, we're going to get into aggression in beards today, but I'd like to start with something else, a a theory that you and Dennis Bramble proposed back in the mid-1980s that suggested that our genus evolved in no small part to be extraordinary among other species at endurance running. And this was a unique perspective at the time. What were the early hints that you picked up on that made you want to pull on that string that connected our evolutionary history to endurance running? During the summer, when I would go out and run with my dogs, they struggled to keep up. And it was clear that they were having trouble with the heat. Whereas when I ran with them in the winter, it was the opposite. They, you know, they just would run circles. They'd be happy. And at that time, Dennis Bramble and I we're studying the relationship with, with the, really the coordination between how we breathe and our locomotor cycle. So the integration or the coupling of breathing to the locomotor rhythm. And humans, largely because we're bipedal, we run on two legs rather than four, we have much greater flexibility in, in, in how we breathe during, a, a, during running. We, we can change the, the breath frequency relative to our locomotor cycle 
whereas quadrupedal mammals can't. They're, they're coupled at one breath per step or one breath per, per two steps. So if they're running really fast, they're breathing really fast. And if they're running slow, they're breathing slow. And they can't regulate that. That's right. That's right. They're stuck. It's, it's, it's a mechanical coupling. And so there was this obvious difference. And we just started wondering about what that difference might mean in terms of, of locomotive performance. And so uh, early on, I published a paper making that argument. Then about 20 years later, Dennis Bramble collaborated with uh, an anthropologist at Harvard, Dan Lieberman, came back and really extended the argument, really strengthened the argument that anatomically and physiologically, humans are in fact, compared to the other great apes like chimpanzees and gorillas, humans are specialized for, for distance walking and distance running. Now, you were a runner back then. Are you still a runner today? Yes, but a lot slower. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of walk up hills and, and shuffle down hills. Yeah. Don't run quite like I used to. <laughs> well, I want to talk about how you used to run because you and your brother Scott actually tried to chase down pronghorns by foot for a while. And pronghorns, which a lot of people call antelopes, are the fastest animal in North America. How did that turn out for you guys? Well, so so that was actually another one of the observations that led to this idea that, that humans may be specialized for running. If you look at the old ethnographic studies of, of different foraging populations around the planet back in the 1800s and early 1900s, there are repeated mentions of this type of hunting where individuals would go out and basically track and chase uh, fast running mammals like pronghorn antelope to exhaustion. And so we gave it a try and it didn't work out that well for us. <laughs> um, we were in uh, Southern Wyoming. We just started off chasing a group of four, four pronghorn. And at one point they ran into a group of four more pronghorn. And so now we were following eight and then we were following 10 or, or 12 or 15 we didn't know which were the first four that we started chasing. And so we were, we basically had to give up. I was just thinking like, maybe if you had like a blow gun with some paint in it, you could mark one of them. That's and you right. Would know if, which one. If we had, if we had marked them, which would be cheating, really, uh, <laughs> we, we, we could have kept going. Whether or not we would have been successful is another question. I love the fact that you said it would have been cheating. For goodness sake, man, you were chasing <laughs> pronghorn. <laughs> you get to make the rules for that. Yeah, that's true. Humans have always been making the rules. That's, that's sort of what we do. Good point. Over the years, the idea that endurance running drove a lot of human physiological evolution, uh, including many of our modern traits, became uh, increasingly interesting to other scientists and then became popularized with Christopher McDougall's book, Born to Run, in 2009. And then at some point, you also became interested in this idea that there was this dichotomous relationship evolutionary relationship between running and fighting. And and here I should note that you, you certainly have never suggested that running was the only thing that drove human physiological evolution, but you started pulling on this other string, trying to figure out what role, if any, fighting had played in our evolution. Where did that idea, that question come from? We In my lab, we study locomotor biomechanics, basically how for the most part, how animals run. We, 
and as I mentioned, we've also been interested in breathing, but we were doing a series of studies looking at the possibility that there's actual changes in mechanical advantage or it's sort of a gearing system in the joints of, of running mammals. We were working with dogs. So we had a series of dogs come into the lab. We would, we would get these dogs from the local animal shelters and we worked with them for a couple of months and then we would adopt them out as pets. We had a male who was an incredibly good runner, but he, was, he had personality problems when it came to getting along with other dogs. He was very aggressive. We couldn't find a home for him, so I ended up taking him home. And so um, I spent a period of, of weeks trying to break up fights, which were happening basically every day between these two males, fights in the kitchen, fights in the living room. You know, there, there were literally blood on the walls. And at some point I realized when I was breaking up the fights, I was making it worse. They, they would just fight harder. And the male that was aggressive was not that great of a fighter. And he, he would start a fight and then he would get beat up. The other male didn't want to fight, but the male, the aggressive male was also by far the better runner. And so I started thinking about possible anatomical and physiological trade-offs in terms of performance. If you're specialized for running fast and economically, that might actually in, interfere with your ability to, to fight. Let's talk about this in the context of the human fist. This is, you've written, pretty unique among our close relatives. How so? So if you compare the proportions of our hand to the proportions of the hand of a chimpanzee or bonobo, we have really short hands. So we have short hands, but compared to the, the, the other great apes, we have really big, strong thumbs. And the argument for 60 or 70 years now is that those hand proportions, that they actually characterize all the bipedal apes. The, the original bipedal apes, the Australopithecus, that proportion-wise were a lot like chimpanzees, they had hand proportions like we do. Or we have hand proportions like they had. More or less the same time our lineages, lineage stood up on two legs and started walking and running on two legs. But the other thing that these hand proportions allow is for us to curl our fingers and wrap our thumb around those fingers to form a clenched fist. And so one of the things that distinguishes us in terms of fighting behavior is humans fight with fist. The other great apes can't, they literally can't make a fist. They're, so like a gorilla are, can't make a fist with their hand? Well, okay, gorillas are closer. So gorillas, okay. are, their, their hand proportions are intermediate and they don't, they have shorter fingers and shorter palms, but they also have really small thumbs. And that thumb is important because it helps tuck in those other fingers, right? It helps solidify the fist as a striking object. Exactly. And, and, and we think the thumb, the big strong thumb, is, is important in actually transferring the energy from the striking surface of the fingers through to the, to the wrist and actually protects the bones of the palm of the hand, the metacarpals, from breaking. And so we've done this, a series of tests to, to test that idea, and it turns out to be true. I want to talk about these tests because okay, okay. In, in order to understand this better, I promise you we're going to get to beards, but <laughs> in order to understand this better, you and some of your students devised a machine that involved a large wooden frame, guitar string tuners, fishing wire, and human cadaver arms. Can you talk about this yes. Rube okay. Goldberg machine from hell? <laughs> okay. Uh, so... 
what we wanted to do to test this idea was to measure the, the strain, the actual deformation of the bones in the, in the palm of the hand. These are bones that actually break when, when, when humans punch things, when they punch another person or they punch a wall. And so our test was to measure that deformation of the bones when people or when hands struck with different hand postures. So a clenched fist, an unclenched fist, or a slapping open palm slap. And because we wanted to measure the strain, we, that's, that's an experiment you can't do in a, in, in a human subject. And so we shifted to using cadaver arms. And uh, basically the idea was we had a platform that we could mount a dissected arm on, tie um, fish, really high-tension fishing lines to each the, the tendon of each of the muscles that control the wrist and the fingers and thumb, and use guitar tuners to adjust the tension in those those lines on those different muscles. Which so you could us, make it you could make it make a fist at different strengths. Exactly. We could we could put the hand in whatever posture we wanted to put it in. This is so, so creepy and so cool. <laughs> and so um, we would take that platform with the with the arm mounted on it, and we put that platform on a pendulum so that we could swing the 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 hand or the fist in the, in the slapping posture or in the clenched fist posture into an instrumented weight. So we basically had it striking this cadaver arm, striking a weight with an accelerometer. And at the same time, we had the bones in the hand, or at least one bone per, per test, instrumented with strain gauges so that we could measure the deformation of the bone at the same time we were measuring the force and the energy of the strike. And what we found is, yeah, there's a big difference. There's a dramatic difference. The, the, the bones of the hand are protected in the clenched fist posture to a much greater extent than when the fist is, is not really clenched. The fingers are sort of folded, but it's not really a clenched fist. Or when the hand is, is used to slap the way the other great apes slap. And so this lends some evidence to this pugilism hypothesis, basically that fighting with other humans was a powerful selective force on our anatomy. But we're not only talking about fist. You also uh, did some research on the arrangement of our uh, the bones in our feet so that we could have a planted heel, which is very important in fighting. Um, you've written about the arrangement of bones in the human face and particularly the sexually dimorphic ways that our faces are shaped. Um, and and I want to I'm going to pass through that stuff for a moment here because I really want to get us to this famous beards study. We should say that you didn't do this experiment on people's faces, much like you didn't use living humans to test the strength of the fist against impact, uh, because you know that would destroy people's hands. But you also did not use cadaver heads in this case. You used a fiber epoxy material to simulate human bone and sheep fleece to simulate a beard. Do I have that right? Exactly. Yep. yep that's okay. It. And, and so, um, and explain it, to me the contraption here that you used in this experiment. Okay. So the actual work was done by an under undergraduate in my lab, uh, Ethan Bezeros. And 
what Ethan did was he used a, a, a drop impactor testing machine. It's basically just a weight that you drop. You drop the weight from different heights onto whatever the material is you're testing. And based on the rate at which that weight decelerates, you can calculate the energy that's ab absorbed by the material. And so uh, hit the experiment was the sheet of material that, that mimicked the bone, that mimicked the bones of the face, either covered by sheepskin, either with or without the fur. And um, again, we got a relatively dramatic result. I think the number was with the fur present, the specimens absorbed 37% more energy than when the fur was taken away. And so it was, it was a result that's consistent with this idea that, that full beards, we're talking really full beards. The sheep fleece, their hair, the hair of sheep is, is finer and it's much more densely packed. But the, it, in terms of the volume of hair, it's similar to a, a full beard on a male human. And this, you know, the thought is here is that we perhaps evolved these beards to protect our faces because, again, there is this strong selective force in being a good fighter or, I guess in this case, like a person who could survive yes, a, yeah, a fight yeah. or a strike to the face. Right. So if, if you are protected by armor, you're more formidable and more dangerous than, than someone who's not. And so th th this original idea, I've got, to, I've got to do a call out to Charles Darwin here. He was the first person to really start arguing that, in, particularly in mammals, these, a lot of these differences in our anatomy are tied to male-male competition. And one of the things he was interested in was the hair of the face. He was interested in beards. He was also, he, he noted that, that the manes of male lions don't really grow until the males become sexually mature. And so he equated the, those manes to, to male-male competition. And, but when it came to humans, again, Darwin had this, later in life, he had this very full beard, right? He argued that in humans, that it wasn't, that's not what it was about. It wasn't about fighting in humans. It was in fact about attracting females. So, uh, he, when it came to humans, he he had this alternative hypothesis. So D Darwin, who had this really full beard, thought like, "Yeah, the the women love this." Yes, exactly. And and he didn't. Maybe he had personal data. I don't know. <laughs> but but he he did not have the data that we have now. There's been a number of studies, both in the U.S. and and in Europe, that show that on average, modern women, at least in these relatively affluent countries do not prefer full beards. Your initial observations about human evolution and running were met with, as you said earlier, some degree of indifference. The pugilist hypothesis has been met with a little bit of resistance. And you've previously suggested that might be in part because of what some people worry it says about us as a species. Yes, I, I think that's largely it. So if you look at just a word about the structure of our faces, if you look at the bones that are most different in the face of a female versus the face of a male, those bones and those, those are the bones that most often break when 
when male humans punch each other. And, and that, those are the same bones that are most dimorphic in uh, the early bipedal apes, the Australopithecus as well. And so there's this association between greater robusticity of the face in the same parts of the, of the cranium of the skull that are most likely to break in a fight. And so if you, if you start thinking about the human face from that perspective, every time you look in the mirror, you're sort of, you are confronting possibly the dark side or something that reflects the dark side of, of, of human nature. And I think that's scary to people. It's, it's disturbing. You don't, we don't want to think of ourselves as being an adapted for, for aggressive behavior. You know, a lot of people can't imagine running for miles and miles also, but <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but I think a lot of people would say, look, if we were born to run, I think we should run. It's good for us. It taps into something innate. It's healthy. So if we were born to fight, should we also fight? I mean, in hell, and of course, in like in societally acceptable, healthy ways, what do you think? So in terms of exercise, I think the, the, the aerobic exercise that endurance running represents is incredibly important for health. At the same time, there's lots of data supporting th that resistance exercise, which is consistent with, say, training for, for fighting. That's incredibly important for health as well. So I would not argue that we need to be fighting. What I would suggest is that we, we all need to be, particularly as we get older, to be doing exercise that involves increasing muscle mass, keeping our muscles strong, exercise that involves uh, training for aerobic capacity, keeping our heart and our lungs strong as well. So are you one of the people that considers yourself a runner or, or not a runner? Uh, I am now a runner, but I don't consider myself a runner. Like I don't identify as a runner, but I run okay. every day. Okay. So here's, here's the interesting, another, I think, interesting idea. But what humans did when we, is that we very rapidly after we evolved, we, we moved out and, and populated the planet and endurance hunting, persistence hunting there are environments where that's not possible or probably not as important as it is in the, the savannas of Africa or the, the deserts of South Africa. And so, and what you see is in different populations of humans, you get different, different anatomical specializations, right? We become adapted to the environment in which we spent a large period of time. And so we've got these different body types. We've got different identity in terms of the physical activity that we're, that we're individually interested in. And that may, it may be that early in our evolution, humans were born to run, but that that's no longer true. Now we're in this world, this increasingly globalized world uh, where technology is doing so much for us, where we are living more and more similarly to one another with every passing year. What does that entail for our continued evolution as a species? So natural selection is, is 
is still going to be happening, but it's not going to be happening really very much on the level of physical performance. And so I think the more important question is the mismatch between who we evolved to be as a species and our modern lifestyle. There's an abundance of, of food, an abundance of calories, right? And, and at the same time that we are physically very inactive, those, those things together are sort of a disaster for long-term health. And I, that's, that's an issue that I think it, people are largely aware of, but the evolutionary side of it, the evolutionary story, I think helps people understand why we're in the position we're in. That is David Carrier. He is a professor in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Utah and the author or co-author of scores of studies suggesting that humans' physical characteristics were driven by running after other animals and fighting with one another. David Carrier, thank you so much. Matthew, thank you. This was a great conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by public radio listeners like you. So if you're a donor to Utah Public Radio or KCPW in Salt Lake City, we want to thank you. And if you're not, why not? Head over to upr.org and click on the donate link and make sure in the comments you let them know that you're a supporter of this program. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.